Dusty Smollett convicted on five of the six counts he was facing. Did you lie on the stand? Mr. Smollett had faked a hate crime and then lied to the police about it. From the first day of this case, his case has been prejudged. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The debrief. Welcome to the debrief. I'm Chris Glorioso in for David Ushery. On Thursday, the Jussie Smollett case ended with a guilty verdict. Jussie Smollett was found guilty of five of six counts of staging a hoax hate crime. It once again captured the nation's attention, not just because this was a celebrity defendant, but also because this was a trial about an accusation that someone used a fake claim of victimhood based on racial prejudice and anti-gay hate. I'm joined now by Charlie Wojciechowski, a reporter in Chicago who really needs no introduction. He has been covering this case for almost three years now. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. You know, you have been covering this case from top to bottom. Can you begin by just bringing us into the courtroom? The whole nation was watching while there was a resounding guilty verdict against Jesse Smollett. What was it like in there? What, what did Jesse uh, look like? What was his reaction? Jesse has been remarkably composed throughout this entire uh, trial. He has kept his emotions in check, and he did so during the reading of the jury's verdict. Almost no emotion from him whatsoever when the jury foreman stood up and read each one of the charges individually, the first five charges against him, guilty of the sixth one, a not guilty charge. As the courtroom started to break up, Smollett did hug his mother. His mother has been with him the entire time. He has a very large contingent of family members. But once everyone left the courtroom and the, the news conference started in the lobby downstairs, he and his people walked out. They had masks on. They had security. They bustled past everyone, brushing cameras aside. So I really think they thought they had a win here. Uh, but uh, Dan Webb is the special prosecutor in this case. He's a former U.S. attorney. He is a man who you know, charges about $800 an hour for his services. Who are going to pay for them? One of the best attorneys in the country. And uh, he really built a very solid very credible and a very evidence-based case against Mr. Smollett. The evidence against Jesse Smollett, at least from the outside, appeared to be stacked, not just the testimony of the two brothers, but also the video evidence, the text messages. Um, as you listen to the way the defense tried to frame things, um, what was their hope? What were they really trying to get the jury to believe? As with any defense case, you're looking for that one juror in which you can create some kind of sense of reasonable doubt. So they, they put on a couple of witnesses. They thought their most important witness and the witness they ended on was a hotel security guard. This all happened very close to the Sheraton Hotel along the river here in Chicago. And uh, a security guard says he saw two men, two white men run past him. And then he looked down the street to see someone on all fours. And uh, that would have been Mr. Smollett. But what the security guard didn't say is that he saw a crime in progress. He said what he saw looked like three men joking around, playing around. He didn't sense that anyone had been injured, that anyone was in trouble. And he never called police because of it. Uh, he was uh, discovered by the defense. He came forward after a lot of this information became public. Do you think it's fair to say that that testimony backfired? Might it have been the testimony that actually 
you know, made up the minds of jurors that he was guilty? I think the testimony that backfired was Mr. Smollett's himself. And in a case like this, you have to put the defendant on the stand because of the weight of the evidence against him. You need to hear things from his side. But Dan Webb, in his cross-examination, caught Smollett in so many inconsistencies and forced him to backtrack on statements he'd already made. You mentioned uh, the texts. One, one of them uh, involved Mr. Smollett was in New York. He was there for a read-through on a Broadway play. His flight was delayed coming to Chicago on the night that they planned this to happen. So he was in contact with these two Osendaira brothers, not by text directly, but by Instagram. But what uh, Smollett thought he was doing was hiding his communication with them in a public message to Instagram. Uh, but when the Osendaira brothers responded to that public message, then private messages began to develop on Instagram. And Jesse never knew that. He didn't expect that to be uh, information in court. He thought all that was information that he could somehow cover in the cloak of it being a public Instagram message. Well, Webb did some digging and uh, found out that those were private uh, conversations at which they were setting the times that they would be there to commit the alleged crime. And because of that, I think the jury lost a lot of confidence in what Smollett had to say. They, they saw him backtrack a number of times on the color of uh, the alleged uh, attackers. The noose was very important in this case. After uh, Smollett was attacked, he alleged that uh, the attackers put a noose around his neck uh, to kind of stage a lynching. Well, when Smollett walks into his own building, he has a very neat noose with one little rope pulled out of a coil of uh, clothesline. By the time police arrive at his apartment, he's already taken that off, put it back on, and made it look to be a much, much worse noose than it was originally. You see it on the security vent, uh, video of his building. Then you see it on police body cam later on. It looked very different between those two times. And it gave the impression, I think, to the jury that you know, something's up here. He's making this up. He's making it look worse than it was. You know, that noose, such an awful symbol of this country's ugly history of racism. And I want to take, you've taken us into the court itself. Now I want to talk a little about the court of public opinion, because I really think that that is the significance of this case. If you look at, uh, you know, a number of particularly uh, conservative factions that have taken this case and held it up in some ways to try and justify a notion that a lot of claims of hate crime are in some way imagined. Is that, in your view, the tragedy of, of this case? Uh, that, that, uh, you know, folks who are saying, look, here's somebody who made it up. That must mean other people are making it up. I think that's horribly unfortunate. In Chicago, that hasn't been an angle that's been played out very much. Uh, I think when this, when this originally happened, you know, we are Chicago. We are, have been a Democratic city for as long as I've been alive. We haven't had a Republican mayor, the last uh, Republican candidate ran with an unlisted campaign headquarters telephone number. Um, so it, it, it's, we're a very blue city. For someone to come to our city and be attacked by people claiming to be from the far right, uh, wearing uh, MAGA hats, shouting these uh, racial and homophobic slurs, that didn't ring true right from the start. And I think that's what got a lot of people in Chicago thinking there is something wrong with this case because that didn't sound like Chicago people. And especially uh, the area where this happened, the Streeterville area. Um, I'm, I'm right now talking to you about uh, a block from where this happened. Um, 
it is not what you expect to see people out in the streets in the middle of the night, let alone people out looking to do trouble at that time. So what happens next? You know, after the after the verdict, Jesse Smollett's attorney said he will certainly appeal this. Uh, They will try to make a claim that there was an inconsistency in the verdict because there was one uh, not guilty uh, uh, finding. Um, But what what could he potentially face in terms of punishment? The the punishment is a statutory maximum of three years on each charge. Uh, That is almost unheard of that someone would get that kind of sentence for what is essentially a a felony disorderly conduct charge. It is much more likely that he will pay some kind of fine and serve some kind of community service, which ironically was what the original plea bargain was under uh, State's Attorney Kim Fox. What's more important, though, is a comment I think that Dan Webb made last night during his remarks about the trial. He accused Smollett of lying on the stand. That's perjury. And uh, while it's not often prosecuted uh, when you perjure yourself on the stand in your own defense, that is a possibility here. That if uh, they wanted to, they can come back and say you lied to us during the trial. There is still a second uh, trial waiting, uh, Mr. Smollett. There's a federal civil uh, suit filed to recover more than $130,000 that the city of Chicago spent on its investigation. They say they employed uh, 25 detectives, uh, 3,000 man hours of uh, their work, 1,500 hours of video they looked through. They say that cost the city money and they want uh, Mr. Smollett to pay them back for that. Lastly, you know, you mentioned this is what amounts to be a fairly low level felony. This is, at least by the books, not the kind of case uh, that would typically garner these kinds of resources. But it's more than that, isn't it? Can you try to put in perspective for us the significance of this case in Chicago and for the nation? Well, in Chicago, I, I can really speak to that directly. It's a case about civic pride. Uh, here is someone who came to our city and accused people here of doing something very bad to him in order to enhance his own career. And I think the city reacted in a very negative way to that. They, they, they said, no, we don't want this to be the kind of stigma attached to Chicago. There are enough other stigmas that we have. The last thing you need is a, a fake problem like this one. But speaking to another economic uh, issue, Chicago has become a major film and television hub. We have the Cinespace Studios here, uh, NBC for films a lot of its uh, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, we're a major movie production hub. You want those people to keep coming back. and You don't want their people to feel unsafe in Chicago. And I think a national level celebrity claiming that something like this happened attracted a lot of negative national attention. And the city wanted to fight that back as best they could and then maintain this industry, which has grown in the last 10 years and shows no signs of not growing in the next 10. Charlie Wojciechowski, thank you so much for taking this time. A reporter who has uh, covered lots of big cases in Chicago. This is a big one, and uh, we appreciate you taking us inside. Chris, thank you. The Jesse Smollett courtroom drama is, of course, part of a long sequence of cases playing out against the backdrop of our nation's reexamination of race and justice. I'm, of course, talking about the Rittenhouse case, the case against Ahmed Arbery's killers, the case against George Floyd's killer, and so on. Our next guest is concerned that the Smollett case has gotten just as much attention, if not more, than those cases. 
I'm joined now by Professor Gloria Brown Marshall, a civil rights attorney and constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She recently wrote the book, She Took Justice, which is a history of the struggle of black women from Africa to the civil rights movement here in the United States. Professor Brown Marshall, thank you for joining us. And I want to ask you to begin with, what is the significance of the Jesse Smollett prosecution, not just in that Chicago court, but in the court of public opinion? Actually, it doesn't have widespread significance. And I'm very puzzled by the fact that people have really taken this case and tried to run with it. I don't think it has legs. Here's the reason why I say this, because when you have someone who's accused of and then convicted of falling, of filing a false complaint, that's that individual. And this is what the issue is, whether or not an individual person of African descent who does something that is seen to be wrong is now the whole race of people, is the whole African-American history now on trial. When white people, white men do these things all the time, you have white people filing false claims and it's not the whole white race that's on trial and everything any white person has ever done. So it's the way we have a double standard when it comes to treating people of color, I think that's really the issue here. It's an important point. What differentiates this one from, for example, the, the Kim Potter case in, in, uh, in Minnesota right now, which of course is a case about someone who claims it was an accident. She shot an unarmed man in a vehicle uh, in a routine traffic stop, um, and it was just an accident. And you know what seems to me to be on trial there is uh, implicit bias itself. The question about whether it's okay for someone to say that was just an accident. Well, we're talking about someone's life who's you know their life is taken, their family member is gone, as opposed to someone who's convicted of telling a lie to police. They could have been told to maybe increase his popularity, or it could have been told to um, have a, a larger standing in the community for his career. Whatever it was, it was a very personal incident. This is a, a life taken, you know, in the Kim Potter case. And then we have police who are the only ones who are basically allowed to be armed outside of those people with a gun permit. And so we are supposed to trust the police to know how to use a weapon, to know the difference between a taser and a gun. And so to say, oops, I chose the wrong one, even though one weapon, the, the, the gun was on the right hip and the taser was on the left hip, they're trained when to use one and when to use the other. And yet she's supposed to say, oops, I took a life and that's it. We have parents who accidentally leave their children in the car too long and they are held responsible. We've lifted police officers up to a higher level of responsibility and almost celebrity in this country. And then when they do something wrong, we then give them a lesser um, responsibility when it comes to consequences. I don't see any relevance between the, the Smollett case and the Kim Potter case. And I think that's the issue. When it comes to what Black people do or are involved in or are victims of, it's the whole race. When it comes to white people, it's not the whole race. It's that individual person. So that individual person walked into a movie theater and slaughtered people who were watching the movie at the time. It's, a, it's an individual white person with a mental illness who walked into a, a grade school and slaughtered those grade school children. It's never the whole white race. I think when we get to the point, we start looking at white people and impugning their character based on the actions of those people who are going out doing these types of crimes and, and, and these um, murders that are taking place, then we're talking on a level playing field. But to toss in all the brown and black people together 
um, when one person does something, I think is not really taking history or our present situation seriously. It's interesting that um, in some sense, Jesse Smollett's lawyer made the exact same point, uh, pointing out that you know there were vast amounts of resources poured into this prosecution in Chicago for what amounts to a very low-level felony. Is that a problem? Uh, not only that the public sort of fixated on that Smollett case, but also that, that prosecutors treated it with the, with the seriousness and severity that they did. Well, think about the Karen cases. Think about the many white women who have charged that a Black person was doing something illegal. When have they been prosecuted? for filing false charges or, or abusing governmental resources. I don't see those charges taking place. And this is why I'm saying there's a difference. When the white women are, have constantly you know, brought these types of accusations against people of color, in particular African-Americans, where's the government then? The justice system is just us when it comes to um, being forced into a corner and being and prosecuted. You and your work asks us to look in the mirror. It asks us, it is a call to, to, to re-examine our morals as a society. Um, and I wonder if you can lay out for us, how concerned are you that a case like Jesse Smollett's gets about as much or more attention than a case like the one against Officer Kim Potter? I'm very concerned. And, I'm, and even when we speak it in the same breath, as you asked in the beginning of this, you know, what, what is this case in the, in the whole history of the canon of civil rights? It should be less than a blip on the screen. So why is it getting so much attention? Because this is a way to counterbalance the, the behavior, the outrageous behavior, and the deaths of so many Black people. If this one individual who decided perhaps on a, a chance for his career to do this one thing in the history, the 400-year history of this country and, and North America, gets the same attention, then what is it that we're grasping for as a country? I, I mean, and I'm going to throw this out here. Um, I'm going to throw it out here that it's something that people want to have happen. They don't want to believe that white people can be as bad as they are and doing so many things because these are people's relatives. Those are relatives who were standing under those heavy, those um, hanging bodies in those lynching cases. And so are those your relatives? Many people who can turn their backs and say, I don't want to be connected to that. It makes me feel too guilty. And so they can then hang on to this Smollett case and say, well, you know, maybe we're not so bad because they're bad too. And I'm not saying that people of African descent are angelic. We're human beings, but we have persevered in outrageous situations of brutality in this country. And that brutality is not going to be evened out in a level playing field by one Smollett case or any other case or somebody else who's black who's done something horribly offensive. Too much has happened in this country that's been at the hands of white people that you can't turn your backs on all the civil rights movement and social justice because of one or two bad apples or even more bad apples, given all that white people have done in, in this country against people of color, especially African-Americans. Lastly, you are making this compelling call to people in the Northeast who largely, at least in word, if not indeed, um, you know, are, are, are in agreement that you know, uh, there is a double standard, that there is systemic racism informing many of these law enforcement decisions. But you know that half of this country uh, is not hearing what you are saying in a way that is going to call them to action. 
So how do you get your message to them? I'm an educator and an activist, a civil rights attorney and a writer. I put it out there and it's really up to the people to actually decide to pick it up. There's only so much we can do. And that's why I like talking to people like you. I like the fact that your listeners are open to hearing it. They may not agree with everything I've said, but that's the whole point that they actually can hear it so that they can decide to talk to their relatives during these holiday seasons. One thing that I've, I've heard is like this friend of mine said, who's one of my best friends, a white female. And, and she said, well, they just unfriend me on Facebook. And so I said, but in order for them to unfriend you, you have to actually give them the information. So this fear of being unfriended, this, this fear of having a, a tense um, holiday dinner, is that the cost? Is that what, you know, people are willing not to have these types of conversations, not to put this information before their more oppositional relatives because they're afraid of a tense turkey dinner? I mean, I think that people need to really think about what are you willing to do? Are you willing to do a level of discomfort in your own family, in your own family relations, in order to get this information to somebody who's only watching another station? They never hear anything like this unless you bring it to them. So make that step. That's one thing that someone can do. Give this to someone in their family or their friendship a circle who would not have heard it. Let them actually say, I disagree, but in order to disagree, they have to hear it in the first place. So each one of us can be an ambassador for social justice within our own family and, and, and friend circle. And I'll have this last thing to say about people who have immigrated into this country. And I've heard this constantly. Well, I had nothing to do with that. That had nothing to do with me. I wasn't here when that happened. It's the power of this country that enticed and attracted them to immigrate here. And when you immigrate into the country, you have to buy into what this country's history is. You're not in a bubble. So anybody who's been here for five years or five generations needs to know that this country was built on the back of oppression of people of color and continues to oppress people. And what they've gained over time has been gained through bloodshed, violence, and discriminatory laws. And it, turning your back on that because you just arrived in this country means that any country you, that a person would immigrate into, um, they would only take the little part in which they showed up. The country doesn't begin when people immigrate here. History is what made this country a great, and history is, is what this country is still battling against. You inherit the good and the bad. Exactly. Exactly. Professor Gloria Brown Marshall, thank you so much for taking this time with us. Have a wonderful holiday season. I would really appreciate you. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Debrief. I'm Chris Glorioso, in for David Ushery. Thanks to Melissa Mack, Darren Price, Ben Berkowitz, and the whole team behind this podcast. We'll see you next time.